Hey guys, welcome to episode 127 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So we first we want to apologize for a little bit of a late release. We know this episode is kind of coming out like a week late, but that's because our John was very sick. I was, I was. And sorry guys, I uh, I still sound very, uh, a little strained, like my voice, but uh, I'm good. I'm, I'm all good now. Um, I'm asthmatic, so sometimes I have the flare-ups and... I can get really sick pretty quick, but I'm good now. Yeah, this was a long recovery, so now you're good, ready to record, and we have an episode that we're releasing right now, then we have a Patreon episode that's going out tomorrow, and next week we have another regular episode too, so you're going to get a lot of True Crime Couple. I have them all waiting in the wings, so they're ready to record. We're also recording right now in the midst of a thunderstorm. We are. So it is very atmospheric, though. I kind of like it. If you hear thunder or lightning, that'll get you in the true crime mood, hopefully, and not annoy you. (laughs) So today, I promise we have another amazing episode for you. But before I get into the introduction, I just wanted to remind all of our listeners that it would be totally helpful if you could leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on, or you could check out some of our sponsors, which really helps. And if you want to go the extra mile and get more True Crime Couple, you can always join our Patreon page at patreon.com slash true crime couple. Okay. That was all, I think, under a minute. That was pretty good. Yeah. Maybe that'll just be, always be the spiel. Quick. I think to so. To the point. All right. So are you ready to get started? Yeah, let's do it. Logan, all oh, your voice. I feel so bad. I know. My voice is pretty bad. <laughs> Sorry. Logan, Ohio, in Hawking County is located just outside the Wayne National Forest and southwest of Columbus. It is a place known as a tourist destination for those who love nature and camping. Logan, like many other mining towns in the 80s um, who had their mines shut down, really had to deal with a void that was left within the community when the mines and the factories shut down and now there's really no source of income for an isolated town And people are either going to be out of work or they're going to have to travel long distances for work. So it really affects the community as a whole. Many residents of Logan were suffocated by poverty, just as the abandoned structures that surrounded them were by the wilderness growing through their bricks and mortar. And the same as other regions that fell to the same fate, the teenagers of Logan wanted out. Two of those teenagers were Todd Schultz and Annette Cooper. The two were young and in love and dreamed of leaving their hometown to move somewhere else, somewhere exciting with more of a future. And this is usually the way most teenagers feel when they're growing up. No matter what, they want to leave. But unfortunately, in October of 1982, the couple would go out for a walk and never return again. The gruesome discovery of their bodies and the investigation into who could have killed such a loved couple would haunt Logan forever. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Todd Schultz and Annette Cooper had been born and raised in Logan and met when they were in school. It was clear that they were in love 
and at 19 and 18 years old, respectively, they had made solid plans for the future. Annette was attending Hawking College and was majoring in computer science, but she knew her future would be brighter if she got her education at a larger university, so she had plans to transfer to Ohio State University the following year. And that was going to be easy because she had really great recommendations from her professors and she had straight A's. So she was a really good student. And, you know, I'm not sure if you are all familiar with this, but it was really difficult for women to break into either like the field of the sciences or technology. And she seemed to be wanting to do that, getting into the new wave of computers, which is pretty cool because usually females don't follow in that direction. So I think that kind of speaks a lot about Annette. So they would rent an apartment until they saved enough money for a house. But the plan was for Todd to follow her to Columbus. And while she was going to school and working part time, he would get a full time job and the two of them would just save. It seems like such a simple time that it'd be nice if things were that simple again. Like you could just go to school, live in an apartment, save money and then be ready for a future. Yeah, unfortunately, things don't work that way anymore. Not always. Yes. No, they don't. We wish. But Todd was getting very eager to leave Logan, and his patience was wearing thin. He wanted Annette to abandon their plans and just get married right away and start working somewhere just away from where they were. So it seems like Todd is still a teenage boy (laughs) here in this situation. Absolutely. Plus, I mean, listen, she has goals and she wants to make sure that she can obtain them. And by doing that means to stick to the plan. So stick to the plan, Todd. You gotta. You have to. (laughs) Annette is going to argue with him. And they kind of often went back and forth about this. And she would just tell him, you need to be patient. But after all, he's a 19-year-old boy. And privacy was, you know... Not easy to come by. And that's kind of what he wanted. He wanted privacy with his girlfriend. So he was kind of eager to get into an apartment so the two of them could just be together and be alone. So I think he was, he had a short-term goal, if that's the best way to put it. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Todd and Annette actually had a very unusual living situation. Todd Schultz lived at home with his mother and three siblings. His parents had recently gone through a divorce that wasn't the best, but they were still really good friends, actually. But there was some animosity there. And his father rented an apartment within Logan. Now, although Todd did not live with his father, he remained close with him because the two of them were on the volunteer fire department together. And Todd's mother, Sandy Schultz, liked Annette very much. She liked that her son was dating someone who and hoped to marry someone who was strong and in- intelligent, just someone with a good head on her shoulders. And Annette seems to be very grounding for Todd, which I'm sure, you know, Todd's mother sees as a great quality because it seems like her son needs a little bit of grounding as a teenage boy. Or it could just be that, you know, she's like, you know, I've done my duty. It's not my turn anymore. I'm going to just, leave, you know, let him go be with his girlfriend, and you know, and future wife now. Go ahead. You take care of him. <laughs> <laughs> I've done the Todd stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so um, she also had a very soft spot for Annette because she'd been told by Annette and Todd that Annette's stepfather had allegedly sexually assaulted her. 
and continued to do sexually inappropriate things in front of her. So Sandy Schultz cared about Annette and didn't want her to be put in that situation. So she actually agreed for the 18-year-old girl to live with them. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, this, of course, had its own complications. The couple fought often, like most teenagers do, but now Todd's family could hear everything. And if you can remember fights that you got into with your boyfriend or girlfriend when you were a teenager, it's really not something you want your mother to hear or your boyfriend or girlfriend's mother to hear. So it was kind of awkward that they had these kind of silly teenage fights just out in the open with Todd's three siblings and his mother home. I mean, I feel like living together like that, though, that stuff is bound to happen. Yeah. No, it totally is. And the couple on the morning of October 4th were having one of those arguments. It had been silly. The same thing they usually fought about. Their plans to get out of Logan. Todd wanted Annette to drop out of school and get married. And she wanted to hold on to her own dreams and continue with their plans. And she wanted to be successful. She was looking long term and Todd was kind of looking short term. And he was thinking, you know, this the way we all did when we were young of I can take care of you as long as we have each other. We have everything. And she was a little bit more realistic. Now, this wasn't necessarily like Todd was demanding of Annette or didn't want her to work. He just kind of wanted to get out from underneath his mother's roof. That was his plan. And I think most 19-year-old boys, especially in 1982, when I think we're used to a society where it's so normal to kind of like stay home till you're 30, you know, they're, they're ready to go out into the world because college isn't a reality for everybody. And it wasn't for Todd. So he thought he was already entered into his adulthood. Definitely. I mean, I think I think when you're young like that too, it's really hard for you to see long term. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that was my problem. I don't know. But like you know, guys tend to not see the long term to decisions that we make. You know. Yes, I think this is what's happening here a little bit. Yeah. But I think as a as a kid, it is hard to see the long term because you've never had to experience that adult life. Yeah, it's true. The two were in the Schultz home when they began to argue. They stormed through the house, and finally Todd went upstairs to lay in his room. Sandy had heard the whole argument and went to check if the kids were okay. As she walked out of the room she had been in, she saw Annette storm out the front door. So she went up to talk to her son. She left, you know, she told Todd. And at that, the boy jumped up and went out to get her back. Todd rushed out of the house, and Sandy followed. She watched as Todd caught up with Annette, and the two seemed to embrace and make up quite quickly. From there, the couple walked down the street towards a popular walking trail, which is where Sandy assumed they were going. Her son turned around and smiled at her, as if to tell her it's all good, and that would be the last time that she would ever see her son, or Annette, alive. The first sign that something was wrong was when Todd did not come home to take his little brother to soccer practice like he was supposed to do. Sandy was upset with Todd at first. She figured that he and Annette had made up and she knew that Todd and Annette kind of went elsewhere to um, have sex because she was very adamant about them not having sex under her roof because she felt like she was kind of like Annette's guardian at this time. 
So that obviously made things really complicated between the situation, their living situation. So she figured that Todd and Annette had gone to his father's apartment because sometimes that's where they went with their escapades, if you know what I mean. See, I would just feel extremely weird, you know, going to my dad's apartment. Losing it, using it as a love shack? Yeah, I, you know, go there to shag. I don't know. Oh, my God. Don't I say that shag, word. Shag. John, nobody says that. What are you, Austin Powers? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, you, know, you know what? I have not ever heard shag? you say that word. I know. <laughs> Ten years. Wait, wait. We have to leave that in. Really be, are we leaving this in? Yes. Okay. <laughs> You're so weird. Okay. That's okay. It's okay. Well, hey. Listen, I don't, you know, I would want to go to my dad's house to do a little shagging. Okay. I, I, you know, it's not what I want to do. No, it's awkward. So, hey, dad, can I use it as a love pad? Like, it's weird. I, I find that strange. But the children did kind of use it for that. And, I, and I'm calling them the children because when Sandy and her ex-husband kind of communicate about Todd and Annette doing this, they always kind of say, like, don't let the children do that. And the children can come over whatever they want. So it's like kind of ironic that what they're talking about the children doing is not a very childlike thing. So Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where she assumed that Todd and Annette were and maybe time had kind of escaped him and he didn't come and pick up his brother and bring him to soccer practice. But when Todd failed to show up for the Logan Volunteer Firefighter meeting, a meeting that he would have never missed, his father knew that there was something off. Now, Sandy had a, she was like going to school to become an accountant. So she had class to get to and she wouldn't be home till 9 p.m. So she kind of just figured after she took her son to practice and when she took her son to practice, she stopped at the firehouse and yelled at her ex-husband because she thought, you know, you're letting the kids be in your apartment. Don't do that. So then she went to her school, and then when she got home at 9 p.m., she expected Todd to be there, and she kind of expected to have a talk with him about his responsibilities and things like that. But when she got home, she realized that both Todd and Annette had not returned home. And this is hard because the two are at an age where technically they're adults, but in reality, they're still children. Yeah, like, I feel like that's hard, too, right? Because, like, you don't... Well, this is before the age of cell phones. This is... They are adults, but they're not. If you call the police, they're going to say, you know, file a report, wait a certain amount of time. So, like, you kind of feel weird right now. They're in a weird interim. Yeah, it's a very weird situation to be in. So, like you said, they can kind of go off on their own. And even if it is to make the wrong decisions, there's kind of nothing the family or police could do at this time. So that's why the police weren't notified right away. And at this point, Sandy didn't want to believe anything was wrong. Inside, she thought that Todd and Annette were maybe still at her husband's apartment. So she had a key to this apartment. Really? Yes. And I mean, that's like, has to be, they said it was an intense divorce, but it couldn't have been that bad if she has a key to his apartment. You know, I mean, I have to say, I mean, even though I do find that a little bizarre, I mean, I... Depending on his line of work, which you said he was a firefighter, right? Yes, he was a firefighter. So, I mean, sometimes you're not home. You know, things can go wrong within the apartment. I guess he was just doing the right thing by saying, hey, you know, 
if you need to get in there for whatever reason, whatever that might be, and I'm not there, or if I need you to do something for me, if you could, right? you know, I guess it's kind of like one of those things. I think it shows that they're still friendly and that they still rely on each other. Yeah, which I think is great. But then it's like, you know what? Let's just put it all aside, guys. Don't get divorced. I know. John's very anti-divorce. No, no. Well, well, um, you know, it is what it is. Things happen, you know, but... You know, he's you, always like, we're going to make it work. <laughs> like, okay. I mean, like, you, know, you got to you gotta think like, I mean, like if you're that cool with the person that you got divorced with, I mean, there must be something there, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, maybe we don't know. We don't know. We, we don't, don't know. know. We don't know their life. But I like that you're rooting for them. I always root for them. <laughs> yeah. I'm rooting for everyone. <laughs> so she went to see if the kids were there and she just assumed they were because what i'm thinking is right now she's kind of going into a denial that anything could be wrong so it was almost like she knew they were there like that's what she kept saying to herself the whole time like going over there but when she finally opened the door to the apartment she realized that everything was tidy nothing in the sink the beds were made so she went back to her house and called her ex-husband at the station to let him know that Todd and Annette weren't at his apartment And they weren't home, and she just didn't know where they were. She knew the police would tell her to wait 24 hours to report them missing, and her ex-husband confirmed that for her. So they agreed that she would call the police first thing in the morning if the kids weren't home yet. But as happens so often in these cases, the family knows when something is wrong, and Sandy Schultz knew that the kids just wouldn't leave like this. Yes, they wanted to leave Logan, but not like this. The next morning when she woke up, she was in a panic and was desperate to find them. And she was angry. She was up all night thinking about who could have wanted to hurt her son or Annette. And the only person she could think of was Dale Johnston, Annette's stepfather. He had done horrible things to that poor girl. And he didn't like the fact that she was dating Todd or the fact that she was now living in their house, which was a pretty recent arrangement. And he might not like the fact that the two of them were planning to go to Columbus. That's true, because you know, that means that he would be losing all control. If this guy has done what he's being accused of, I mean, then he probably doesn't want to lose control of, you know, of her. You know, her leaving, her having a boyfriend. Like, these are all things that are, are signs that she's pulling away right so could he be involved now because they're missing you know what i agree with that and usually in these cases especially with teenagers it's like well who could have wanted to hurt them and the answer is usually nobody everyone loves them but here there's a situation that's um very dark and all of this is alleged the police have not gotten involved so It's very fresh and there's a lot of questions. But Sandy Schultz is really angry. And out of anger, she called uh, Sarah Johnston, who is Annette's mother, on the phone. And she let all of the whispered accusations fly as she screamed into the phone. How could you live with that pervert, she said. How could you let that happen to your daughter? The kids are missing. I know it has to do with Dale. And Annette's mother, Sarah, couldn't even process the fact that her daughter was missing because Sandy continued. I mean, this is how this woman is finding out her daughter's missing. I mean, that is that is pretty intense. Can I interject? Of course you can. I think that it is a little bizarre 
that if you're with this person, Dale, and these alleged things are going on and, you know, there's alleged sexual assault, and now your daughter now is leaving to go uh, live with her boyfriend, don't you think that maybe, just maybe, there is something to look into? Or it makes everyone in the town or whatever think that those rumors are maybe true? Yeah. Like, it is it is a weird thing. If you have a home and, you know, you, you're a mother, you have a home, your daughter lives there, but she doesn't want to. Right. To me, there must be something else going on there. Right. So, like, you're saying this goes beyond just an allegation because at this point, Annette is refusing to live at home. So maybe Sarah Johnston should look into what her daughter is saying about her new husband. I mean, I, I mean, I think so. And if that's not the case, then please enlighten us as to why you might not have a good relationship with your daughter. Yeah. If you know, if, you know, there has to be a reason. I, I guess is what I'm trying to say for you to not be there with your mother. I completely agree with you. And from everything that I read about this case, I read a book about this case, um, the court transcripts, several newspaper articles, some expose pieces. It's a very complicated situation because Annette is claiming there was sexual abuse. He was being sexually inappropriate with her as well. But the relationship between her mother and stepfather doesn't necessarily sour. They're still in constant communication. And from my understanding, what was happening at the Johnston house was that these allegations came out. Sarah, unfortunately, as we've seen happen before, is choosing to believe everything that her new husband is saying versus her daughter because she believes that her daughter has a history of uh, sexual promiscuity. Okay, so... So it's, yeah. it, it's very sad. Okay, so this is where the problem lies. However, this abuse is all alleged. Alleged? Alleged, yeah. I, but that could be a reason for the issues at home as far as well, why yeah. they're not... Yeah, yeah. Totally. And one would understand the anger of Sandy Schultz of saying, you're letting this happen under your roof. If this is the reason my son is missing, I'm going to lose it. Well, you know, yeah. I'm already taking care of your kid. And that, right, exactly. That's what I was going to say is you have to understand, okay, if you have, uh, if there's an issue there and she cannot live there or whatever, you have to understand that you're also now burdening another family with another mouth to feed, uh, just another place to, you know, have another bed to sleep in. And this is a single mother with three kids. Yeah. I mean, this isn't like, uh, you know, a no big deal kind of thing, you know? I agree with you. And um, so I'll continue with that phone conversation yeah, because sorry. then, no, it's all right. I just, it gets amped up and I just don't want to just say this line out of nowhere. <laughs> okay. So okay. This is a continuation of the very heated phone call between Sandy Schultz and Sarah Johnston. And she says, I know what he did to Annette. She told me everything, raping her, masturbating in front of her, touching her all of the time. So based on the situation and where Annette was living now, it was clear that there had been tensions between the two families. 
But this was the first time it had ever been aired out like this. Like it was kind of always unspoken. Annette's moving in, but we're not talking about it. Because that's that was kind of the way that sexual abuse, especially incestuous sexual abuse, was thought about and, you know, discussed, handled in the 70s, 80s. You don't talk about it. And I think that that might have been kind of what was happening here. But now Sandy Schultz, now that her son's missing, is like letting it fly. So the conversation was short. And brutal, as you can imagine, for Sarah Johnston, because remember, this is, at this point, all alleged. So Sarah Johnston, kind of all within that 30-second phone call, learned that her daughter was missing and what the Schultz family felt about her husband, Dale. As soon as the phone call ended, she called her husband and asked him to go over to the Schultz house and find out what was going on and if the kids were really missing. No, that that is not what you do. Yeah, I would say throwing Dale into this situation was is not going to calm and, the fire. Yeah, listen, listen, this isn't to protect him by any means. No, this is you like know, Well, I mean, especially if we're going on the on the on the whole thing of like that he actually did it, right? Like that this is not the right thing to do. Don't send him over there. You just had a 30-second phone call like of the two of you guys flipping out about him. Don't send him over there. Right. Please don't do that. It's like, you know what, Dale? You put me in this mess. You're going. Yeah, no, That's this kind is, of what is, it seems like. No, she needs to, like, do, do this herself. Don't send Dale. Yeah, you'll just go. How about you guys just How about you guys just get in a car together? He could drive. You two go over there I like and that you're oddly specific about who's driving. Well, that way the, she could just get out and kind of, like, fix the mess at hand here. I see. As far saying. as, you know, with the other mother. That is and hard then, to do when you're And then go find seat. your kids. I would say the kids is the most important thing right now. And Sarah really sends him there to see, like, is this true or is this another exaggeration? Because the vibe that I got was that Sarah and Dale thought that Annette lied about a lot of things. But, of course, that might be convenient for them to think that she lied about a lot of things. Yeah. Because it makes Dale sound a little bit better. But, again, that's all alleged. All alleged. Sorry that we keep saying that word. So there's more about Dale Johnston. Dale was an outsider in a close-knit suburban town. Those in Logan didn't know Dale. They didn't grow up with him. And in 1982, literally all of the residents except for Dale grew up in the town. He was a true outsider. To make matters worse, the Johnston family lived on the outskirts of town on their livestock farm. He lived up there with his wife, Sarah, and her two daughters. And one of them had been accusing him of some pretty horrid things. So was sending Dale over to the Schultz house the the best way to kind of calm this down and figure out what was going on? Probably not. But I'm sure Sarah was hurt, confused, worried. I'm sure she was feeling a lot of emotions and felt like going over there might have been a little too much. She was also at work at the time, and Dale works on the farm, technically, um, during these hours that she's at work. Yeah, I mean, I can understand all of that. I think it's just just one of those things where... It's like, what? Yeah, after that phone call, even though you've been yelled at and, uh, you know, whatever, (laughs) you, you still have your daughter missing. So, I mean, if you had to leave work... To find out what's going on, you probably should do that. 
But I would like say I good said, reason to leave. Work. Yeah, but like I said, I don't know all the little, um, all Nuances. the little yeah, of this relationship and family, so it's hard for me to just place that kind of judgment. But I would want me personally. I'd want to leave work and sort out this possible mess. I completely agree. So once Sandy Schultz had gotten off the phone with Sarah Johnston, she called the police to report her son and Annette missing. She answered the initial questions, but was told an officer would be out to take a full report shortly. She then called her ex-husband to let him know what was happening. While she was on the phone with him, she heard a knock at the door, followed by someone walking in the house. Okay. It was Dale Johnston. So... She told her ex-husband, the stepfather's here, get over here, and then hung up the phone. So now her ex-husband is coming to the house, too. So things most likely will escalate. Dale asked her, what is this about the kids being missing? And at this point, Sandy believed that Dale was responsible for what had happened to the kids. So she angrily explained what had happened the day before and how the kids had not returned home. Before she was finished with her story, Don Schultz, the father of Todd, and Sandy's ex-husband, came into the house and began to interrogate Dale. He asked, Have you seen the kids? Do you know where they might be? And Dale said that he didn't, but then things got intense. Don told Dale that everyone in town thought he was an asshole, and Dale shot the insults right back at him. That was when Don accused him of molesting Annette his stepdaughter, again. And Dale insisted that he had never done any such thing, he had never touched Annette, and that Annette had been lying about that. Out of anger, Don Schultz then began blaming Annette for Todd's problems. It's your stepdaughter, he said. That girl has my son wrapped around her finger. He wouldn't take the job that I got him in Columbus because he didn't want to leave Annette behind yet. And he had threatened to kill himself if he couldn't have Annette. Now, the Johnston family felt the same way about Todd. They felt that Todd had been holding Annette back, and they thought that Todd seemed to be lazy. Recently, Todd had lost his job at the printing factory that was owned by the town mayor because he had a hernia that he had sustained at work, and he lost a workman's comp case but he still hadn't returned to work again. Todd also was very eager. Okay, so this is a complicated situation, so I'm going to explain it to you from memory. Todd had a car that he liked very much, and it was kind of like his pride. Like, he didn't really let Annette drive it. He always had her be really careful around the car. And Annette got wonderful grades in school. So when she graduated high school, which was the year before, her mother and Dale promised that they would give her the car that they owned. But since then, over that past summer and the beginning fall semester of Annette being in college, they'd gotten into a fight, obviously, because now she's living with Sandy Schultz and her boyfriend, and she's now accusing Dale Johnston of the sexual abuse. So they haven't given her the car yet because there's just been a lot of back and forth happening. It's very complicated. But Todd was obsessing on the idea of Annette getting that car that her parents had promised her. 
He kept saying, they promised you that car. It's yours. You earned it. Like, it's you should have it. But Todd wanted to sell the car and use it as a down payment for their apartment. And that's why Dale and Sarah didn't want to give Annette the car because they knew Todd was just planning on selling it and using it for something else. While he won't even let Annette drive his car. I mean, it does sound very childish, right? Yeah. Well, it's it's a very like you know, high school drama kind right. of thing. I think that the parents are trying to hold on to this little sliver of the ability to kind of keep their kids in line, you know, in, uh, in, you know, in such a way like where it's like, look, if we do if we do this for you now, you know, <laughs> this is what will happen, you know, you know, I don't know, like they're just hold, trying to hold on to just a little bit of control as a parent, and they see the writings on a wall. That's why, you know, it's not like it's not to say that like this kid's bad or or she's bad or whatever. It's just it's just a reality. You're young. You don't understand. So that's where they're coming from. Right. It's not necessarily that they're doing anything wrong. It's just that that's the way that they I mean, they just see it from a different lens. Right. Especially a protective lens of your child. Right. Exactly. So that's what's happening with both parents. So it seems that this simple teenage romance was, in fact, very complicated. And it was distracting from the fact that both families, despite their issues, really should be coming together at this point to work to find their children. And if Dale was guilty of anything, let the police find out. Like, it's not the Schultz's job to find this out and crusade against Dale. Let the police look for your children. You focus on finding your children the truth will out. You know what I mean? Like, that Absolutely. should be the direction of this. Not to mention, this is a small town, right? Very small. It seems like it's a small town. And I, I think that you, you know, if the cops show up and now they're looking for two missing kids and the, the cops hear this stuff about Dale and other things, you know, that could be a problem because now it's like instead of looking for you know, two missing children with, on, in, with like a clean slate. Now in the back of their mind, they have Dale as a suspect that, that they need to write off, which means that they need to go and spend time to go do that where they could be maybe looking for him, looking into new leads, not just, hey, guys, this is the uh, alleged accusations. You know, <laughs> let's check them out. I agree with you. And you also have to think of the implications and the politics of the town. Because Dale is an outsider. Nobody trusts him. Nobody likes him. And nobody can even get to know him because Dale is a very closed off person. And he lives on the outskirts of town. So he's not really in town. He's not getting to know people. He's not entrenched in the community. But Don Schultz is. He's a volunteer firefighter. He's friends with all the police in town. So now it looks like, okay, well, if Don Schultz is saying that maybe this guy did it, well, that's exactly what I'm trying to get at. It looks like he did. Right. There's there's lots of little things here that we could say, okay, we might want to remember this for later. Yeah. You know? So Dale left shortly after the fight because it obviously wasn't going anywhere. He went immediately to Sarah's work office and told her about the nasty allegations that Annette had made against him. And now Sandy and Don were making, and we're probably going to tell the police about, 
and the fact that the kids didn't just run away because all of their things were still at the Schultz home. This may be more than two young kids eloping, which is what they originally thought because they knew the two planned to get married. Other employees at the office where Sarah worked heard a very strange response to all of this from Sarah to Dale. She said, I don't care if you raped her every day of the week. I just want my baby back in one piece, which is bizarre and would come up later, but also could be interpreted as her meaning, I don't care that you're affronted by these accusations. My only concern is that Annette's missing. But it is a weird statement. It's a weird way to put that if that's what she meant. I think the one thing out of place here, and this is actually going to be, I I would think it's kind of ironic. The one thing out of place is the, the fact that it seems like everyone so far, other than Dale, right, thinks that, such bad things about him, right? Because there's never been anything out in the, like, you know, 100% fact. Right. The the attention that they're drawing to him is what's out of place. It's a lot right away. It's, it's accusatory. It, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I'm, like, kind of going in circles, but that's how, like, what I'm trying to say is that's what's out of place here so far is the fact that there is so much focus on one person over something that we really don't even know to be fact. No, I agree with you. So it's weird how, like, it almost makes me think, uh, are are they involved? Who is involved here? Because they're trying to, like, shift the weight to somebody uh-huh. who is an outsider, who is on the outskirts of town, who it could be pinned on. Right. So now that's got me thinking now. So that, to me, this is a red flag. The amount of heat that Dale is, is, is taking And how it's so easy for everyone to just throw it on him. Right. Okay. So either way, it's clear that Todd and Annette were missing. And a police investigation was to begin. When the police got to the Schultz house, they asked Sandy for all of the information surrounding the disappearance. The police were thinking at first that the couple had run off and eloped. But Sandy insisted that that couldn't be true because they had left all of their clothes behind and their car keys and the car were still there. It was clear that the couple had just stepped out. In fact, they were just making up from a fight, and they were taking a walk to cool off and make up. Sandy told investigators the couple were not big drinkers, and they didn't do drugs, they didn't lead a risky lifestyle, and the only person that she thinks could have wanted to hurt them, especially her son, was Dale Johnston. When the investigators went to talk to the Johnstons, Sarah was equally as concerned for the couple and just wanted her daughter's safe return. However, they did mark down right away that Dale was not as concerned as his wife. He wrote it off as the couple being silly and thought they would be back soon. The following day, the police organized a search for the couple, and most of the town was involved. The search included the woods, farms, and areas around the Hawking River. The town was gripped in fear. And this was not the kind of town where you had a lot of people passing through. So most likely the person that was responsible for having anything to do with this disappearance was among them. And that's something that's hard to process. That someone you knew for your whole life could be capable of kidnapping and doing something 
to two very well-liked people, people that had an amazing future, which is why it was so easy for them to point their fingers at Dale, because he's an outsider. Oh, it wasn't someone we've grown up with our whole lives, and no, because we would have seen it. It's Dale, the outsider. And especially because Dale's not present at the searches and he's not taking things seriously, it's so easy for him to become the perpetrator. He's not doing himself any favors either. No, but I think I think it comes from a place of, you, you know, I, I hate to defend somebody who I don't know whether they're guilty or innocent. but Of this but, alleged yeah, sexual exactly. abuse, yeah. Let's just say he's innocent completely. Would you be a part of a search, a part of anything to do with this, even though that is your wife's missing kid? But wouldn't you feel like any sort of resentment? Because you got to think, you're the outsider. You weren't born here. Everyone doesn't like you. They're making everything. Everybody is accusing you of such heinous things. Um, you know, and now it's even worse because they're accusing him that, that you know, seems like they are gone missing because of him right you're not going to want to be forthcoming you're not going to want to help out you're not going to want to be friendly right i can understand that like you you know you, you know people are being accusatory yeah i mean that's something that is uh life ending this is these are really serious allegations and if they're true he's a monster absolutely and if they're not true his life is ruined mm-hmm. But if we go based on him innocent. being innocent, let's say, of what you know of that stuff, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's weird that he's not taking part of anything. Yeah, I think it's justifiable because no one would want to feel that and have right. to go every day knowing that they think that he did something that like that. I agree with you. I know. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So after the first day of searching, the police force actually stopped the search, and they did this because they truly believed the couple had eloped. So, I mean, that must have been frustrating for both families. Like, just because you don't think they're missing, you stop your search. But the Schultz family and the community did not believe this to be true. Remember, both Todd and his father were volunteer firefighters. So they had an outpouring of support from other volunteer organizations in the area. And one of those organizations was REACT, the Radio Emergency Associated Citizens which was a volunteer search team. Okay. So React set up basically a massive search of the town's location from like the surrounding town of Logan into the National Forest and the old coal mines, which could be unstable. So search teams were often needed, like if a hiker went missing, which is why React is like a thing. So they searched this whole area and this organization is going to recruit a lot of other people in the community to join in on the search. And even though the local police have stopped, REACT has continued, which, as you can imagine, makes the Logan police force look bad. Like they don't care. So the citizens have to take up the search. I mean, that is what it looks like. Yeah, and that is what's happening. Yeah, it is what it looks like. Like that's the reality. It's not just optics. Yet. Right. So, by October thirteenth, things were not looking good for the police department. So remember, they were reported missing on October fifth, our wedding anniversary. 
<laughs> I, like I mean, that. not yeah. like a good thing to combine it with. <laughs> no, but, but <laughs> that's when they were reported missing. And then the search only takes place on October 6th and then stops. So by October 13th, React is still searching and things aren't looking good for the police department. So they decide that they should get involved in the search again because obviously they didn't elope if they've already been missing for eight days. So now the volunteers had the organization of the police and all of the police resources, which is wonderful. On the first day of renewed police involvement, a shocking discovery took place. The sheriff himself paddled a John boat down the sluggish Hawking River in search of some sign of the teenagers. There was a lot of debris in the river that he was moving aside with his paddle. But when he dislodged something that had been stuck on the sandbar, he knew right away that he had found a body. As he pulled the boat closer to the remains, he realized that it was only the torso of a male. There was no head, arms, or legs. Oh my god. Shaken, the law enforcement officer looked around the area. He looked where they were. Where was the rest of the body? And a little further off in the distance, caught on some branches near the trestle bridge, they saw another torso. This time, it was a female torso. She, too, was missing her head, arms, and legs. Most likely, these were the partial bodies of Todd Schultz and Annette Cooper. But who could have done this to them? Wait, so these torsos were them? Well, we'll find out later. They're them. Oh, my God. What the hell happened? I know. It's crazy, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. There's a lot of anger involved and chaos in that. Wow. Okay. Okay. Now, the next task was telling the families that bodies had been found. They made quick work of this because they knew it was a small town and word traveled quickly there. I mean, the whole police force knew that it was just the torsos and they knew people would know quickly. So they had to tell the families fast before word got round. The Schultzes and the Johnstons were told that their bodies had been found in the Hawking River, but the bodies need to be identified. All were devastated by the news. Um, Because this is hard. We found these two torsos. We think it's Todd and Annette. We truly, because it's 1982, no DNA, no things like that. They're like, it's going to be hard, but we have to ID the bodies, and we're going to try and do so, but it's going to take time. Unless we find the other body parts, which they were going to continue doing. But at this point, Dale Johnson says something that they find to be a bit odd. After the initial shock, he told investigators that he wanted to identify the bodies for them. He said that he knows he would be able to say if it was Annette. How? It's her naked torso, dude. You're not doing yourself any favors. So... He kind of, like, is insistent. They very nicely try to tell him, like, no, that's not necessary. They know the bodies are in bad shape. I mean, they've been in the water for right around nine days. So they're they're politely telling him no, but he's, like, not taking no for an answer. He's insisting, I can handle anything. I've worked at a mortuary before. And they had to several times refuse his request. 
to see these torsos. I mean, this guy is a weird dude. I mean, that is weird. Yeah, that is so weird. Yeah, I mean, that is weird. I don't know why you would do that, but... But, like, you said, like, you were trying to, like, rationalize things and say, like, okay, if I was being accused of these things and I knew I was innocent, I might not want to get involved. But then here he is getting himself involved weirdly when you know you're a suspect. Yeah, like, I don't know. Is it, like, is he doing it to, like... So that way the mother the mother doesn't have to go. Like, I don't know. I am giving this guy a lot of chances. But, like, I'm just... It is bizarre behavior. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. But I'm just trying to see this out to the end to see if this guy really is a monster or just a weird dude. Yeah. A very weird dude. It's usually hard to decipher the difference. Who has no social contact with anyone. Yeah. Maybe he's just well, weird. Well, he does. He does have social contact. He just might All right. Be... All right. Fine. I was just, all right. Fine. Then he's just a weird dude or is he a monster? Okay. Weird dude or monster. Yeah. That's where we stand that's about where an we hour stand. into it. Yes. Okay. I see. So before they leave the police station, after they refuse his request several times, the police asked both families if it was possible to give them photos so they could try on site to identify the torsos, like pictures of them in bathing suits or something like that. Reasonable request. So this was easily done for Todd, but the pictures that were brought in by Dale Johnston would become infamous in Logan, Ohio. Both Dale and Sarah Johnston would later claim that both pictures were taken innocently And we have to remember that this is through the historical lens of the 1970s, which it is true things were more acceptable then than they were today, like taking pictures of kids with their shirts off and things like that. Like nowadays, you know, a lot of my friends have kids and they're very apprehensive about, you know, and I agree with them, like putting a picture up of a child in a bathtub. Like they're just, we know things now that, are deemed inappropriate and we don't share. Do you know what I'm saying? I understand. Well, can be inappropriate with wrong, disgusting eyes looking at them. I understand what you're saying. That yeah. may be innocent to a parent, but to a predator is something different. Um. So, okay. So that's my caveat. But, um, and this, like, truly, this baffles me. All right. I feel like no matter what decade these pictures were taken in, it's weird. All right. Okay. This guy is being accused of sexually abusing his stepdaughter. He has asked several times to see her torso that was found. His reaction is not that insane. And then he brings in three pictures. In all three pictures, Annette is nude. And these pictures were taken around the time she was 12 years old. In two of them, she was holding a shotgun with a band of ammunition across her chest, hiding her nipples. Okay. In the third picture, she's lying on the living room rug with her backside exposed, and she's completely nude in this picture as well. No. I, d- I don't like these pictures. No. And what was the, you to tell us the third one? No, those are the th- two of them. Oh, I apologize. Two of them were with the shotgun, and one was on the living room rug. Okay. And the police felt the same way. This is very, very bizarre, very strange. He brought these pictures in. So they accepted them quietly, and then they bagged them as evidence. And they were never returned to the Johnston family, obviously, because 
I mean, they're pornographic seemingly in nature. It's not just a picture of um, a child in a bathtub or, you know, like the weird posed pictures. Hold on a minute. I'm, I'm making a connection here right now. Uh, is it before you were saying how the, the mother didn't trust the daughter cause, or said that she would lie and said that she was promiscuous? Yes. Okay, well, it, I, don't you find that odd? You're calling her promiscuous and all this other stuff, but you're taking pictures of her naked at 12 years old with a cowboy thing and whatever, and then on the rug. Yeah. Like, well, that... I think Dale was responsible for those pictures. But she doesn't know about it? Oh, it's weird. What they're referring to, listen, I don't want to speak ill of the dead here in this situation, but there was a situation before she dated Todd that Annette was caught sleeping with one of the police officers of Logan. And how old was she? She was in high school. So this was before Todd and her really started dating. So she was around 16 years old. Okay. Well, you know what, though? All that has really no bearing on anything, really. Well, I'm just saying that's her. That's what she's referring to when she says her daughter. Like, I'm not saying she came out and said her daughter was promiscuous like she didn't use that necessarily that word necessarily but she said that her daughter has had like sexual exploits in the past it was kind of a big deal with this officer and logan the officer was working on this case and he had to later recuse himself when it came out that he did have a sexual relationship with annette when she was 16 years old okay i you know what it is it's 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 small town complicated yeah it is it is it is very complicated but it's just I find that funny how we're you know we say th- that about her, but you know as a, as a twelve year old girl they're taking naked pictures of her. Maybe maybe there's a reason why you know it's trauma. Her beha- her behavior as an older adult I should say is maybe from what could possibly have happened. Right. To what extent I don't know, but that could be a reason. There's a there could be a connection as to why she's viewed that way based on what happened to her as a child maybe right and you know what i'm gonna go off of what you're saying because i completely agree with it one of you know the symptoms and things that people deal with after going through trauma that stems from sexual abuse promiscuity is one of the things that a lot of people go through like finding their own sexual identity or not associating sex with necessarily like feelings of love and compassion but more of transactional and promiscuity is a something that happens as a result to someone being sexually abused if she was promiscuous this might just be her mother thinking well she had sex with one person and she was religious or but also this could be seen as an officer taking advantage of her because at the youngest an officer could be would be around like 19, 20. That's the youngest. But I don't, I don't want to say this officer was right out of the academy. I would say more he was older. So was she victimized by this person, too? We don't know. Exactly. We don't know, right? And then also, let's just say this. Uh, we'll leave it at this and we'll move on. But even with those pictures, right, you could say, okay, maybe this guy is doing some weird, you know, weird crap, you know, to her as a, you know, as a child. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean that he committed murder and chopped up bodies. Right. So it's very different. It's it, you know, like I understand that that's those those accusations are crazy, but it's not the same thing here. We're dealing with murder and chopping up, you know, right. bodies and sexual assault. Like he might be guilty of that, but he might not necessarily be guilty of murder. Exactly. And one thing we know he's guilty of is horrible friggin' judgment. Can Dude. he can he just stop showing up places? Don't go to the a mother's ha- other mother's house. Don't go to the police station. Just stay at home and tend don't to your farm. Don't bring the pictures, Dale. Just tend Jesus to your farm, Christ. dude, and don't go anywhere. Can you imagine <laughs> don't do it. what was going through this man's mind when he was saying these pictures will work? These pictures will totally identify the torso that you have in your that morgue. That you won't let me see that I really want to see. I don't know. Weird. Oh, my God. It's just disgusting. Yeah. So, the search resumed for the rest of the body parts on October 14th. What a sentence. (laughs) Jesus. A large radius from where the torsos were found was searched. And a few hundred yards, they didn't have to search far, away from where the torsos were found, a deputy with the Hawking County Sheriff's Department found seven small burial sites. The search was halted and shallow graves were unearthed. And within the graves they found, within all seven graves, they found four arms, four legs, and two heads. It was the rest of their body parts. Wow. The medical examiner would later determine that the cause of deaths were double gunshot wounds to both of their heads. Although Todd had been shot in the chest, back, and arms as well. It was clear that the dismemberment happened post-mortem. However, any other damage that had been inflicted to the bodies peri- or post-mortem could not be determined because of the decay of the torsos in the river. This was a ghastly crime that had the town in a tailspin. Two teenagers went missing, and now their body parts had been found. I mean, that just sounds so crazy. And just a side note here, after the torsos were found, the Ohio State Bureau of Investigation was brought in and the investigator who was at the scene when the body parts were being recovered from the OSBI, the man that was there, he was horrified at the shoddy police work that was being done. And he would later testify as much um, when a trial comes and he said the county sheriff deputies destroyed those grave sites he watched as they they walked through it they were using their hands to pick things up there was anything that was collected there he said was compromised so he wanted to remove himself from that investigation as fast as possible that's really interesting yeah everything would be inadmissible because of the the way it was collected which goes now, you, knowing this now, is it even possible that if you think that if you know someone that, you know, that you think did it right and you're going to try to make a case against them, it's gonna can be you hard. even do it? No, it'd be really you difficult. Know, you know, can it really stand with shoddy evidence and hearsay? So I'm curious to that now, like what they're going to come up with. It's interesting. Yeah. After the discovery of the bodies, the investigators were determined to find witnesses regarding the movement and whereabouts of the couple. Many come forward. 
The first person who came forward was a homeless man. He had said that he saw the couple on the riverbanks at the bottom of the bridge. This piqued the interest of the police because when Sandy Schultz had last seen Todd and Annette, they were walking away and they were headed towards the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad tracks. Now, the CNO tracks were a common way to get around Logan, and they also led to a trestle bridge under which Annette's torso was later found. This area, the riverbanks of the Trestle Bridge, was not just a location of discovery, but it was also a popular place for the teenagers to go in town. With its low-hanging tree limbs and cover of the bridge's stone abutments, they would go there to drink, do drugs, and have sex. And that was just what the homeless man said had happened. He described... Um, a couple that physically matched Todd and Annette and the clothes they were wearing that day. And he said he saw them having sex on the riverbank. Okay. So another disturbing fact. Like, dude, why, why are, you are there watching? so many disturbing facts? <laughs> why are you watching, dude? <laughs> oh God, um, sweet Jesus. I mean, okay, so we have someone that's saying that that's where they were, I guess, when they went missing? Yeah. Okay. Well, they're saying this is the location they went to. They're trying to track down where they went after Sandy Schultz saw them. And this is the first indication, okay, this is the first place they went. They went to the Trestle Bridge. The couple had obviously had a fight. They were making up. This homeless man was watching. Okay. Also disturbing. So he said the couple walked to a hidden area. They had sex. And soon after, the couple left the area and headed east. Now, this is important because uh, Todd lives in West Logan, so they were headed east away from Todd's home, okay? The homeless man provided a time frame for this, and it matched with another witness whose home was nearby. She was having a yard sale, and the couple stopped and put down a down payment for a coffee table that they said would be perfect for an apartment that they hoped to be getting soon. So obviously, these two were completely made up. Now, this was around 5 p.m., meaning that Todd and Annette did not have a lot of time before Todd had to be back home to drive his brother to soccer practice. So this is when, and the woman says this that had the yard sale, that she then saw them walk west in the direction of West Logan back the way they had come. So they're going to have to go on the railroad tracks and under the trestle bridge again. Okay. Another woman, Shirley Frazier, came forward and said that she had been at her mother's house in West Logan, so in the direction they'd be walking, a little after 5 p.m. that day. Shirley had been having a crazy day. Another woman, Shirley Frazier, came forward and said that she had been at her mother's house in West Logan a little after like 5.30ish, and she had been having a crazy day. And she was telling her mother all about it. Her estranged husband had showed up at her job at the post office, left her two kids there, and said they were her responsibility. This woman's got a crazy life going on. And she had to continue working. So she had to quickly drop off her two children at her mother's house. Because of her exasperation, she was only half paying attention to three people in her 
like peripheral vision. Okay. Her mother lived near an embankment that was headed down to the train tracks. So basically there's like on the side of her mother's house, there's a little hill. Below the other side of the hill is the train tracks. Okay. She saw a young couple, a woman who had blonde hair like Annette Cooper, and they were with an older, taller man who was wearing green coveralls. It looked like the three of them who were located on top of this hill were having a very animated discussion. And when she glanced back in their direction, the three of them were headed down the embankment towards the railroad tracks. When she was leaving her mother's house a few minutes later, she said she did hear gunshots, but she didn't really think anything of it because people were always firing their guns down by the railroad tracks. Well, what it sounds like is, number one, if this if there was truly a person with the couple, right? If those gunshots were from this third person, this third wheel, so to speak, then that means he must be familiar with the fact that people fire their weapons over there, right? Because you wouldn't just do that unless you were under the influence of drugs, maybe, or you didn't care, or you knew that no one's going to question it. Right. Also, let's just say this. If you're going to shoot those people, you're going to need a couple things, okay? You're going to need an area of seclusion where you can actually shoot them. Mm-hmm. You're going to need uh, the right tools, as grim, as gruesome as it is to say it. You need the, the right tools on your either on your person, which means you knew that you were going to do that something like this ahead of time to decapitate you know, and cut up these body parts. Right. And there has to be a reason for it. I I feel like I think you're bringing up a good point because this isn't just a simple. Okay, I shot. I mean, I'm not saying it's simple, but shot two people. That's it. I left the bodies. This is somebody who shot two people, dismembered them, separated where they put the torsos and and the body parts. It is very complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. And, you know, I, I almost want to say maybe it, maybe it's more than one person okay so maybe more than one person there needs to there's a lot of factors that are going to go into killing them i agree with you this isn't something that's simple no it's definitely not simple and it's strenuous <laughs> so these witnesses were helpful in tracking the movement of the couple and unfortunately shirley frazier told law enforcement that she was unable to help identify the man because she had just been so preoccupied and I think this is actually helpful. It's nice that she's just not assuming what the man looked like and she's being honest about, I really didn't get a good look at him. So although helpful, it only brought them a little bit closer to who this man was. Another local man is going to come forward three weeks after the bodies were found and say that he thought he had seen the couple in downtown Logan on the day they went missing. He said that he had seen them with another man who was angry with them and forced them to get into his truck, but he couldn't recall this man or what his truck looked like. At this point, the police were desperate, so they decided that hypnotizing the man was their best bet to try and get him to remember what he had seen. Are we really resorting to... Hypnotizing? Yeah. Yeah, we are. Okay. Hopefully it bears fruit. 
well, after being hypnotized, the man said that he remembered who he had seen that day with the murdered couple. Can you guess who? Is it someone we already know already? Oh, yes. Uh, one of the mothers? Dale Johnson. With a man, John. Oh, oh, I, I'm sorry. I thought it would make... Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, this I was, isn't like a okay. Norman Bates situation. Well, I will say that the overalls make sense if you're a farmer. That That is something that I didn't mention before. Okay. So that's another thing. And they saw him... This man is saying he saw Dale Johnson basically force the two into his truck. He also would have all the necessary tools as a farmer to dig holes and put body parts in oh wait yeah we'll get to that i'm thinking about that so it's after this that the investigators want to bring dale in for questioning he had always been kind of on their radar for them but you know now that they have a witness who i don't know how reliable they are but could place him with the couple that day because like does being hypnotized stand up in court i don't know but The main thing that they wanted to focus on here were the rumors about the sexual abuse. They wanted to find out if the rumor that Dale denied was true. In preparation for their meeting with Dale, they had met with two other boyfriends that Annette had prior to dating Todd Schultz to see if they could corroborate any of this information. Like maybe Annette had talked to them about it. While Dale was brought in for questioning, this time he was very combative. It seemed that he had enough with being the town pariah. They asked him again if any of the rumors were true about the sexual abuse, and again he denied that they were. But this time they confronted him with the fact that Annette's ex-boyfriends all said that he was very protective and seemed jealous of the fact that they were with Annette. This compounded with the fact that they had a witness that put him with the two teenagers that day infuriated him he insisted that he was nowhere near downtown logan at the time on october 4th instead he gave an alibi but this alibi is not going to make him sound good he left work at the local grocery store where he worked as a meat cutter okay so now he has an i guess you could call it some sort of an like anatomy to know where to cut, what to do. What to use, stuff yep. with bones. Mm-hmm. Um, and he left his job as a meat cutter and went onto his farm to tie bales of hay. Don't forget he has a lot of farming equipment that could also do that work pretty easily. They continued to question him and they put a lot of pressure on him. Had he abused Annette? Um, why didn't he help in the search? Why was he mad that she was... Was he mad that she was leaving? Why did he want to see the bodies? And what about those pictures? I mean, for 14 hours, they questioned him. And for 14 hours, he denied having anything to do with their deaths. But despite his denials and lack of physical evidence, a judge granted the Hawking County Sheriff's Department a warrant to search the home and property of Dale Johnston. They were looking for a gun that could tie him to the gunshot wounds that the victims had or weapons that could have been used in the dismemberment of the two bodies. During the search, they found a 22 caliber gun, which was immediately sent into ballistics and a very large machete that could have been used for the dismemberment. 
Another thing they found was a pair of very muddy boots that could have been used to dispose of the bodies or dig the graves. More photos that were similar to the photos he had handed into law enforcement were found and bagged as evidence as well. With this evidence, they arrested Dale Johnston for two counts of aggravated murder, and the Schultz family was overjoyed because the whole time they thought it was Dale Johnston. Now, it's a little troubling only because there's no physical evidence. It's all circumstantial. I think it's really shaky. And once again, it has to do with the fact that he is an outsider in this town and he doesn't have a good name for himself. Yeah. And he's a little weird. And he also, again, it's hard to say. I, it, I want to put it the right way because I don't want anyone to think that we're doing the wrong thing here. But yes, he may have molested his stepdaughter and put her through sexual abuse and a traumatic childhood. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's a murderer. Right. Like it, that's no, it, all still alleged. Right. It doesn't. It it doesn't prove anything. And I think, if anything, so far we have we have all this evidence, but it's all shoddy. Yeah. It, ev- the evidence is shoddy. There's no DNA anywhere. You know, there's no DNA yet. There's no fingerprints anywhere. It's all t- yeah. eyewitness testimony when they were under hypnosis to figure out better details. That's the only connection of that, what of yeah. what they saw. You know, another thing too is. Who who's to say what like we don't really even know their timeline. We don't know even know what they did. Well, we know a general timeline from three witnesses that do are seen to be reliable, which is this homeless man who saw them together, then the woman who saw them at the garage sale, and then this mother. So their time is accounted for up until four forty five. The last person they're seen with is this man in overalls. This other person is saying that he saw them in downtown Logan, which is far away from where Shirley Frazier saw them. So we don't even know if he really did see them. But it his story completely contradicts three other reliable witnesses. Okay, so this is what I'll say, and then we can move forward because I don't want to beat, beat it to death. I think that what's going to wind up happening here, you know, this is how I see things playing out. He... This guy, Dale, regardless of what he is, I think he's going to get the rap for this, okay? Because I think the evidence is shoddy, but they're going to they're gonna force it down a jury's throat, and he's going to go to prison. Okay. Me, personally, I do not know right now if he did it. I know the evidence is stacked against him right now as far as he has motive. I know that he is weird as hell. I know that he has the possible tools and means to carry this out. Right. But I don't know yet. Well, if, the circumstantial evidence is stacked against him. Yes. I just don't know if I can sit here and say, this guy did it. Okay. It's very, I think everyone back then was on a very one track mind, uh, like a one track mind that he did it. Yeah. And I think that if some someone else truly did this, we might not find them. Or we might not find him at all. No, I because I of this. Agree. Yeah. So just four months after the arrest, the trial began. According to the prosecution, Dale was jealous of Annette's relationship with Todd. He had hated that she moved in with him, and that she would soon be moving away with him. So when he happened upon them in downtown Logan, they're completely ignoring the three other witnesses. He kidnapped them by forcing them into his truck something they had a witness for. He then shot them and dismembered them using his skills as a butcher. 
He put their body parts in feed bags, which he had access to because he had a livestock farm, and he buried them and the torsos he threw into a nearby river. The defense team claimed that all of the evidence that they had against Dale Johnston was circumstantial. The rumors of sexual abuse were just that, rumors, and Dale was never jealous of Annette's boyfriends. They even excused the pictures as being harmless family photos. And when it came to the evidence they collected from the home, it was made clear that ballistics could not match the bullet wounds in the torso and in the victim's heads to the gun found in Dale Johnston's house. I think that's the biggest key. What, what is this, 1982? Yeah. I think ballistics is the biggest thing that you could fall on in 1982. Right. If the bullet doesn't match the gun, then it isn't his gun. And there was also no traces of blood on the machete that they're saying he used to dismember the bodies. Nothing linked him to the crime or the crime scene. Dale Johnston even took the stand to declare his innocence, but did get rather heated under an intense cross-examination, which did not make him look good to the judges. And I say judges because this was not a trial by jury. Rather, the defense chose to have a panel of three judges hear the case. They had not believed him. He was found by three judges to be guilty on both counts and was sentenced to death. Now, I will tell you that I think that that was the best thing that they could have done because I don't think that you could have a jury that would do the right thing in a small town where everybody knows that this guy's an outsider and all the rumors that were swirling. So I think having three judges to oversee this was probably the best move that they could do. And usually the reason why you're going to decide to have three judges or a judge hear your case is really when you do only have circumstantial evidence pitted against you. Statistically, juries do believe circumstantial evidence if it leads to uh, common sense and a presumption of guilt. But judges understand the law in a different way and are taught to analyze the crime and the law and the situation. So usually judges are a no-go with circumstantial evidence. But here they ignored the physical evidence and went with the circumstantial evidence, which is unusual for a panel of three judges. And that is. You're right. So after that, life for Sarah Johnston his wife and the mother of Annette Cooper was difficult. The town believed that Sarah Johnston had married a monster and allowed her daughter to be sexually abused by her husband while she sat back and allowed it to happen. It was also believed by local law enforcement that Sarah had something to do with the crime. Shortly before the murder, she had taken a butcher's class because her and Dale were selling their rabbits for their meat. The police believed that she had really done this because she wanted to know how to dismember a body. Sarah always had law enforcement around her trailer, and they questioned or pulled over anyone who would speak with her or visit her. So she was very isolated within Logan, which is why eventually she chose to leave Logan and remarry, because there she became a monster too. It would be seven years that Dale Johnston would sit on death row before he was granted a retrial. There had been many witnesses that had not testified. 
the homeless man, the yard sale woman, and Shirley Frazier. But the biggest reason why Dale was granted a retrial was that the hearsay of the sexual abuse played such a large role in the trial, but there was no proof and hearsay should have been made inadmissible by the judges, but they made the appellate court decided that they were actually, it's a pretty hefty decision that the appellate court made. Usually a court of appeals tries to take it easy on a judge so they don't It's not a bruise on their ego or their reputation when they decide to appeal or overturn something, a decision a judge made. But I've never read an appellate court destroy judges the way they did in this case. Really? Yeah. It was very intense. It was like uh, tongue lashing that they got. Like It was bad. They were shocked at the amount of hearsay that had been allowed in the first trial. And they even questioned their law degrees. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Okay. So during this new trial, there were many new things that were brought into light. First, a check that was found that Dale Johnston had written on the date of the murders proved his alibi to be correct. The above witnesses statements. um, So like the three people, the yard sale person, the homeless man and also Shirley Frazier were there. And then they introduced the idea of Kevin Tex Myers. So this is a name we haven't heard before. The police had ignored several tips that had been given regarding Myers, who was a vagrant man who lived in a van in Logan. He had had an obsession with Annette and had talked to many people about being into the occult and how he wanted Annette for himself. He was also known to have a large knife on him at all times. Dale's defense argued that it could have been Myers, but the police never investigated him. Um, Myers could have been the one that Shirley Frazier saw the couple with. That's true. And they did know Myers because Myers was their age. Was the kid's age. The kid's age. Okay. In the end, there was not enough evidence to convict Dale Johnston a second time. And he was found not guilty of the two counts of aggravated murder on May 11th, 1990. Uh, I agree. I, I think that that is the, the way to go. Now, listen, I know that this is going to be a little weird for me because I've never felt this way where it's like you have a lot of things stacked up against someone. But just like we've said a million times, it just doesn't sit right to me. It's out of place. All of this is just hearsay. It's shoddy, like, detective work. Uh, Nothing would stick. So let's guess what? Even if he did do it at this point, I can't sit here and say that he should be in prison because none of the the evidence. Well, he should be in prison, but it would be hard to convict him because the police kind of botched it. They botched it, and it's like, where do you stand from here? Like, where do you stand now? You've really messed up your opportunity to really get this guy in prison. But he's had two trials now. You can't just keep him there. Well, this is a bad case of police having a one-track mind. Yeah. It's just Dale Johnston, and they don't look into any of the other people that tips have poured in about. That's unfortunate. Yeah. I, I don't know. So Sarah has moved out of the area at this point, and she was remarried. 
but she did return to greet her ex-husband when he was brought out of jail. And she went on record stating that she had always known and stood by Dale's innocence. Sandy and Don Schultz were contacted by Logan's local newspaper for a statement. And they said that they still believed that Dale had killed their son. Now investigators had to start at square one when it came to solving the murders of Todd Schultz and Annette Cooper. They had no new evidence and no new leads. And now the case was eight years old and they wouldn't be getting anywhere because it's not until 25 years since the crime occurred that there would be another break in the case. In the fall of 2007, a new team was assigned to the cold case in Hawking County, and they chose to tackle the murders of Todd and Annette. The best way to tackle cold cases is to use a fresh set of eyes on it. They worked to collect all of the evidence that had been collected for the case and compile it into one place, which meant they had to get all of the files from the Logan Police Department, the Hawking County Sheriff's, department and the ohio bureau of investigation so once they get all the information in one place and they kind of go over it they compile a list of questions and follow up on each question by either pouring over the case files or re-interviewing old witnesses now although they were working very hard it wouldn't be the cold case team that solved the case but because the cold case team was working it so hard people were talking about it again right so one of the men who had been a police officer when this crime happened he had worked the case was now a parole officer now the renewed interest in the schultz cooper murders made an old police officer now parole officer think about the work he had done during the investigation 25 years prior The case had always bothered him. The fact that the wrong man had been put in jail and a killer had gotten away with murder. So he was thinking about the case again. And during this time, he had a scheduled meeting with one of his parolees, a woman by the name of Judy Linscott. The man knew that Judy had lived in Logan during the time of the murders. So he chose to ask her about it just to see what she remembered. Judy, who was on parole because of a minor theft and disorderly conduct conviction, said she actually did know a lot about the murders. When the murders had taken place, Judy had been married to a man named Kenny Linscott. He had been a drug dealer who was known for dealing drugs out of his home. Judy said she remembered the day of the murders well. She said that there had been a lot of people in and out of her home all day. They had been there to party. They had a party that weekend and it seemed to just keep going and it was leading itself into Monday because October 4th was a Monday. She reiterated that there was a lot of drugs and alcohol. She said the usual people were there, but there was someone else there, someone she didn't know. It was the first time she had met him. She didn't know the man's full name, but she knew his first name was Chester. Chester had been drinking and doing drugs all day with her husband. And at one point, her husband, Kenny, left with Chester and they were gone for a long time. When her husband returned home, Chester was no longer with him and he had a huge cut on his arm. It was very deep, so deep that she could see the white of his bone. She had asked him what had happened and if they should go to the hospital. 
and he told her to shut it. She had learned early on in their marriage that when he told her to shut it, that she should shut it or bad things were going to happen. Understanding the gravity of what Judy was telling him, the parole officer asked Judy why she never came forward with the information. And then she got upset. She told him that she did. She said she had called the tip line that was set up for the missing teens a few times, but each time it seemed as if she was being blown off, so she stopped calling. The man remembered that at the time, the officers who were running the tip line were overburdened and inexperienced. So that sounded right. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that would be something that you would over like that you would miss. And that means, well, think about it. They missed the tip about Myers. Yeah. Tex Myers. And now they missed this tip about Kenny Linscott. So how many people were not investigated? Like I said, it, a lot of people. It's sad. It was just aiming in one direction the whole time. Right. So the parole officer called the detectives who were now working the cold case and told them that he had just been and told them what he had just been told. Kenny Linscott would be a good person to look into. And when they did, they found something curious. Before the bodies were found, back when it was only React volunteers looking for Todd and Annette, Kenny had called the local sheriff station and asked if they had found the bodies yet before they found the bodies. So how would he know the couple was dead? This was on October 8th, only four days after they went missing, and five days before they were found. So now they wanted to speak to Kenny Linscott. When they spoke with him, he was very dismissive and didn't want to talk to the detectives about the crime. He said it had happened such a long time ago, and he was over it. They let him be for the time being. Detectives found out that the Chester Judy Lynn Scott was talking about was a man by the name of Chester McKnight. Chester McKnight was a very interesting character. The first thing they did was look into his record, and he definitely had a record. In November of 1983, McKnight pulled a knife on a college co-ed from Hawking College where Annette Cooper went, who was walking down the railroad tracks. He pulled her down an embankment, and it had been clear that his intention was to rape her, but she managed to get away. The woman later identified him, and he was charged with rape. Although he had initially been sentenced to 3 to 15 years in prison, he was released after six months on an intensified probation period. Does that crime sound familiar to you? I mean, it does. See, this guy seems to be the guy. Right. Well, and you said maybe two people. The two of them were yeah. gone. Yeah. Five months after his release, now we're still talking about Chester McKnight here, after he was released from prison for rape, a 19-year-old college student, again from Hawking College, would later testify that on September 12th of 1986, she had been taking a shortcut on the railroad tracks, as many students did, she passed a man who was later identified as Chester McKnight. She said she politely said hello to him, and after she passed him, she heard footsteps following her on the tracks. So she turned around to see if it was the man. It was him. Chester was now right behind her, closer than she expected. He said to her, good night, babe, and then swung a tire iron at her head. The blow had not incapacitated her as he had planned. 
It only stunned her because she had turned around to see if he was there. He grabbed her by the arm and she was able to escape and report him to police. Chester McKnight, due to his past history with assaults, was sentenced to 6 to 15 years in prison for that attempted rape. This time it stuck and he would not be released until 1999. He had served 12 years. In 2002, he was arrested in Cincinnati. It seemed that he had been talking to a minor over the internet. And when he drove the 150 miles to see the child that he planned to rape, he found out that he had been talking to a decoy. He was arrested for gross sexual imposition involving a minor. It turns out that it was a part of a child predator sting and he had a lot of communication um, with that minor and other minors and other men who were also doing the same thing. He was Chris Hansen. Wow. I, uh, Chris Hansen. Yeah. Um, well, two things. He shows that he could be very physical, right? I mean, like he's very physical. He uses knives, tire, irons, you name it. Right. Obviously, he was trying to ha- uh, to to rape this poor woman. These two women. Two women. Yeah. yeah. So these are all like little tendencies that fit what might have tried to play out with the other two. So if this is true, if he had been the one to kill Annette and Todd, he committed those acts of attempted rape after their murders, meaning that he was not remorseful for what he did whatsoever. No, not at all. And it shows that he doesn't have remorse because he keeps getting out of prison and he keeps doing the same thing. And his crimes seem to just get worse and worse and worse. So for his crime, the 2002 crime, he was sentenced to 18 months. But later, more charges were added on because his computer had been confiscated and child pornography charges were added, which increased his sentence from 18 months to 13 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. While in prison, a girlfriend that he had in the three years where he had been free accused him of sexually abusing her daughter. When investigators talked to him, Chester McKnight was very eager to talk to investigators about the two murders. And the reason for this is that Chester McKnight was in prison as a pedophile and they're not treated well in prison. Rightfully so. If he goes to prison as a murderer, he's treated very differently. So that's why when investigators say they want to talk about the Todd Schultz and Annette Cooper thing, he's all game. Another reason why um, is that he knew if he ever did get out of prison, he would now have to be on a registered sex offender list. And that meant that he wouldn't be able to live at home with his mother in the trailer that he shared with her and he was very obsessed with living with his mother and he wouldn't be able to do that once he got out yeah well it's that's it's that way for a reason designed to keep you away yes from children yeah because her trailer was very close to a school yeah he said that back in 1982 he was part of a burglary ring with kenny lynn scott and at the time he had been 24 and kenny had been 21 He had been on a downward spiral after a difficult divorce. And on that day of the murders, he had been doing a lot of drugs and drinking. He admitted to having had pot, 
LSD and PCP and was drinking heavily. That's insane. Uh, yeah, it's uh, he's pretty drugged up. Remember you said someone who did drugs? Yeah. So Chester McKnight admitted to what happened that day. He said that Todd and Annette had made their way over to Kenny Linscott's house in West Logan, the direction they were headed in. And this made sense because it would be on the way home to Todd's house. There had been a party going on and Todd wanted to buy some weed from Kenny Linscott. Not too much because he had to take his brother to soccer practice soon, but just enough. That's what he remembered being said. When they got to the house, Todd grabbed a beer, but Annette refrained. She had been uncomfortable with the fact that Tex Myers was there. Tex Myers was obsessed with her, and she thought he was creepy. He started to bother her right away. And McKnight scared Myers away from Annette by putting a gun to his head. Oh, yeah. that was, yeah. yeah. That's great. Yes. Immediately, McKnight Chester was taken with Annette. He thought she was beautiful, and his intention was to have sex with her, whether it was forced or not. He asked her and Todd if they wanted to continue to party elsewhere. And Todd seemed to be okay with it, just as long as they started walking towards his house. Annette followed. McKnight invited Kenny to join them. And the four of them lit up a joint near the railroad tracks as they were walking toward Todd's house. Chester McKnight remembered seeing a woman with her kids, Shirley Frazier. And Chester had to fight with the couple to get them down an embankment and away from the sight of the woman because he didn't want to be identified as the person who was going to rape Annette. Okay. And that's why she saw an animated, like, come on, just get down the embankment. And that's why they went down. Okay, this is all starting to make sense now. Yes. The four of them were smoking together and McKnight kept flirting with Annette. But then he got serious. He wanted her to let them all have sex with her. She was taken aback and Todd, upset with what Chester McKnight had just asked his girlfriend to do, lunged at him to defend Annette. In his interview with police, McKnight said that as Todd was lunging at him, he thought, to hell with it, and he pulled out the gun. He shot Todd, and Annette began to scream loudly. So he shot her too. And then he shot Todd again and again, and Annette one more time. Drunk and high, he and Kenny came up with the plan to dismember them in a cornfield near the tracks that following night. And later on, people are going to, like, witnesses are going to come forward and say, we remember hearing weird noises in the cornfield that night, and we told the police about it, but they ignored us. Just like everything else. Yes. So Chester McKnight pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. Kenny Linscott, who would not cooperate with police, refused to confess. However, his lawyer eventually talked him into pleading guilty to a lesser sentence. Kenny Linscott pled guilty to abuse of a corpse, which is a misdemeanor. Linscott was sentenced to six months in jail, the same amount of time that he had waited in jail for his trial. So after his trial, he was set free with time served. 
And that's because Chester McKnight did admit that he had, Kenny Linscott didn't shoot them. But he knew and he never said what happened because he thought he could get away with it. And he almost did. Almost did. Now, although that might have been a short sentence, I do think it's good for the families to know what actually happened to them. And I don't know about Dale Johnston, but I do know that he didn't murder them. It was these two two men on a drug-fueled rage and a sexual predator who has been put behind bars several times for what he did. Yeah, I think that when you are in a small town, you don't always look at what might be obvious. And, you know, this isn't <laughs> this isn't like like how you hear on like other shows um like you know like on Dateline uh, for example they always say oh this person was a great person oh we live in a small town everyone's so great and wonderful right well you truly don't know because you know what these people were in your town okay so it's like you put all this heat on like a guy who wasn't raised in, you know born and raised there but yeah the guy's weird yeah there might be something but it's not murder and honestly you know, look what happened. A family didn't get justice. Two families didn't get justice for a long time. Yeah. Because of it. You know, it's 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 rough. Well, I think a lot what has to do with it is small town politics. Don Schultz seems to be a pillar of the community. And it seemed that a lot of people listened to him. And you can't really truly get mad at this man because he's missing his son. And his son has been murdered. And he wants justice. So he truly does believe it was Dale Johnston. And because people respect him so much and everything he does for the community, they're listening to him. So I think that also comes into play with the conviction of Dale Johnston. But, wow. I think if the confession never came from Chester McKnight, everyone would still believe that Dale Johnston did this. And he might not be an innocent man. The sexual abuse allegations are still alleged because we don't know what happened because Annette Cooper is no longer alive, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's really sad. I mean, for those kids to die and be treated the way they were treated, I mean... Their it, body's it's, desecrated. It's, un- yeah. it's, it's, un- it's unbelievable. Yeah, and it's really sad. And this is a sad story. And... This one was rough to get there, too, because I just feel terrible for them and their families that it's it's hard to put a loved one at rest when they've been dismembered. Yeah. Yeah. And they had such a bright future. And I it's sad to not see what became of them. Todd, when he gets a little bit older and matures, and I'm sure he would have been a great provider. And also Annette and to see where her intelligence could have taken her in the world of computer science. It's really yeah. sad. Just dreams just cut short. Yeah. It's really sad. All right, guys. That concludes our episode, um, episode 127. And again, we're going to have another regular episode for you next week and a Patreon episode in between. So until then, guys, don't park next to vans. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. <laughs>